Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the end of the 100 Years War and how a 17-year-old Joan of Arc helped turn the tide in a few short weeks. Corruption and skullduggery in the Irish House of Commons in the 17th century. And to end the show, the story of body snatchers, the impact of the 1916 Rising and lots more besides as we bring you the history of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. We'd love to hear your thoughts and views. Send us an email, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we brought you the history of Ireland and empire and debated how being a colony shaped our history and how we've contributed to imperialism around the world. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the Newstalk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the 100 Years' War. Triumph and Illusion is the final volume of Jonathan Sumption's epic history of the Hundred Years' War. It tells the story of the collapse of the English dream of conquest from the opening years of the reign of Henry VI until the loss of all their continental dominions except Calais 30 years later. Behind the clash of arms stood some of the most remarkable personalities of the age, including above all the extraordinary figure of Joan of Arc, who changed the course of the war in a few weeks at the age of 17. The book, as I say, it's Volume 5, The Hundred Years' War, Volume 5, Triumph and Illusion, published in hardback by Faber and Faber. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Jonathan Sumption, to the show tonight. Jonathan, you're very welcome. Good evening. Well, can I begin by saying what an incredible achievement this is, the five volumes. The first volume was published in 1990. The volume four was published in 2015. So for, and presumably you were working on it in the 1980s. So this is, this is an incredible achievement. This is more than 35 years work, I suppose. And how does it feel? 43 years. I started in 1979. 1979. How does it feel to have brought the Hundred Years' War to a conclusion? Ah, well, it feels as if I'm contemplating a great void in my life. And, and of course, the other remarkable thing is that this wasn't your full-time job. You were a leading barrister, you were a judge on the United Kingdom Supreme Court. So this was something that you were doing in your, I suppose, in your spare time on your holidays. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's uh, some people uh, do Morris dancing, some people repair old cars, some people ring church bells. This is my equivalent. And when you started off in 1979, did you know that this would be five volumes? Was five volumes in your head that it would take this long to tell the story? No, I originally thought it could be done in three volumes, but I really quite quickly decided that it did need five because it's an incredibly dense series of, um, of wars interrupted by uh, periods of very vigorous diplomacy. So it was probably never realistic to think it could be done in three volumes. I'm glad to have done it in five. 
So tell us maybe, give us an introduction to the 100 Years War. Uh, you know, what we missed in volumes one to four. Um, tell us, because it, it's, it lasts long. It, you know, the one, even the title is perhaps a misnomer because it's a much more complicated struggle than just a simple 100 Years War. Yes, it was technically, it lasted 116 years. Uh, the phrase 100 Years War was invented by the French historian Jules Michelet in the 19th century. Never been quite accurate, but never mind. It was a, an epic series of wars um, between England and France. The common view is this was about uh, the right to be king of France, about rival claims to the crown of France between the English monarchy and the traditional French Valois monarchy. Actually, it's a little more complicated than that. The first half of the war, it was really about trying to to hold territory in Western France because the English kings had always, since the 12th century, ruled in their own right a big chunk of Western France. And they wanted to hang on to that and, if possible, expand it. But as a result of a catastrophic civil war in France in the 15th century, the last part of the war really was about who was entitled to be king of France. And it shows how war really was the driving force creating these these states. And uh, they were such a, a driver in terms of how England developed and in terms of how France developed. Yes. I mean, in history, until quite recently, the two main collective activities of mankind were war and religion. Uh, war was particularly important. It was the main activity of the state uh, in an age which did not regard improving human welfare as the prime concern of kings and governments. So uh, the state was really created by the intense effort uh, uh, required in order to fight major wars. And this intense effort, it wasn't just the efforts of soldiers. Soldiers were actually a comparatively small part of it. It involved a huge number of tax collectors, of administrators, of, of seamen to transport armies, uh, it was a, a war which was fought as much by bureaucrats as it was by soldiers and, and by tax collectors. And by tax collectors. And and in a way, you can kind of see the, the origins of England becoming a parliamentary, a parliamentary system, parliamentary monarchy, perhaps, and then uh, France becoming an absolute monarchy in the roots can be seen in this conflict. Yes, I think uh, that the divergent fortunes of England and France um, uh, in the last five centuries owe a great deal uh, to the experience of this catastrophic series of wars. The key was money. Um, the English kings had a parliament whose consent bound everybody in the kingdom and they were able to raise taxes um, up to the limit of the taxable capacity of their population. France was a richer country uh, but it had much greater difficulty in levying taxes. The result was that in the end, the French kings did without parliamentary consent. They just in, uh, imposed taxes by administrative order, and uh, they consulted their own council, but not many other people were consulted. So what you had by the end of the war was a, a monarchy in France which levied taxes by command, and was able to maintain with these taxes large standing armies. In England, the picture was completely different. Parliament established its control over taxes by being prepared 
to vote taxes when they were really required. And the result of that was that, um, that, that England became, in a real sense, a parliamentary state. It wasn't, of course, a democracy, but it was a parliamentary state. The political class was a class spread across the entire, all the, all the 44 counties of the land, uh, it's, uh, and they were profoundly involved in political decisions to a degree that was not true in the same way as it was in uh, of France. So you have a much more limited monarchy in England, a much more parliamentary, a much more constitutional monarchy. And that situation really lasted right through to the 19th century when, as a result of the French Revolution, the absolute monarchy in France was overthrown and replaced by something rather similar. The Guardian reviewed Volume 4 and compared it to Game of Thrones, said that it was Game of Thrones history with plenty of crazed kings, martial heroes, dastardly betrayals, silky clerical types and prisoners rotting in foul dungeons. It is a remarkable story, isn't it? Because it does have all of these you know, incredible elements that, of course, people like Shakespeare then uh, later made such great dramas out of. Yes, well, Shakespeare, Shakespeare was a dramatist. And he took liberties with the facts, as all dramatists do. Uh, but Shakespeare, nevertheless, has created an atmosphere which, in some ways, isn't that far from the truth. The great uh, this was the this was the period in which uh, a, a sense of patriotism was developed uh, in both England and in France. And in England, Shakespeare, at the end of the 16th century, was responsible for some of the great patriotic speeches in English literature. The speech of John of Gaunt in Richard II, of Henry V on the eve of Agincourt in Henry V. Um, so it was, Shakespeare has a resonance uh, which is important in spite of the fact that he got so many of the facts wrong. And how come the war did take... Why, why didn't England or France at a certain point say, you know, this isn't worth pursuing or continuing? That why wasn't there some kind of uh, realisation that this probably, uh, you know, didn't need to drag on the way it was? Well, the problem was that the English were initially too successful. They won tremendous battles at, at uh, Cressy, at Poitiers, and at Agincourt. And these victories raised their expectations. Actually, in history, battles decide very little. What really determines the outcome of wars is the occupation of territory. Um, and the English were bad at that in the 14th century. They were much better at it in the 15th, but they found that it was so expensive that they became just literally exhausted. They simply couldn't carry on. There were two occasions when the whole issue was settled, apparently. They were both occasions which followed major English victories, and a peace was imposed by the English on the French, which the French repudiated, I think understandably, as soon as they were strong enough to do it. That's why it carried on for so long, really. If the uh, if the battlefield victories had been more evenly divided between England and France, then perhaps some compromise might have been possible. But that's not what happened. And in your previous volume, volume four, you looked at Henry V. And do you think that if he had lived beyond, I think, the age of 36, that he might have brought the war to conclusion by becoming King of France? No, I don't. Uh, I think that he was very lucky in the timing of his death. Uh, no one else at the time would have said that. 
But um, Henry V died just as all the real problems and dilemmas of conquering a large part of Western France were coming home uh, to hit the English. And in fact, Henry V was realistic enough, I think, to have recognized this himself. Uh, Towards the very end of his life, there's quite a lot of evidence that Henry V realized that he was never going to succeed by pure, pure brute force in conquering, conquering France or becoming king for very long. And I think that he had decided at the end of his life that the great object should be to hang on to territories in Western France, primarily Gascony and Normandy, uh, and compromise on other issues. We can't be sure because he died before any of this came to pass. But Henry V was a realist. There are many remarkable women in this book and in this in this history, and uh, we'll talk about Joan of Arc, but perhaps some of the other figures as well, perhaps less well known. Uh, Jacqueline, is it of Hanno, also known as Jacqueline of, of Holland? Uh, she's quite a remarkable figure. Yes, well, she is uh, a, a historical figure who hardly ever features in English histories of the war. She was the heiress of the territories that now consist of most of Eastern Belgium uh, and the whole of the Netherlands, uh, and she uh, uh, she was basically her life was a tragedy. She was married uh, at a very young age to the heir to the French throne and was expected to become Queen of France, but her first husband died at seventeen, and uh, she then uh, was remarried against her will uh, to uh, a. Uh, a distant relative uh, who was uh, a nephew of the Duke of Burgundy uh, and who was hopeless in every possible way, a hopeless husband, a hopeless ruler, and uh, her uh, territories were gradually um, uh, eaten up by greedy relatives who took advantage of the situation. And she died, therefore, penniless in a castle north of Leiden, uh, at the age of uh, less than 40. Tragic figure, but she features in the story because one of the ways in which she tried to redeem her fortunes was to marry uh, Henry V's brother, uh, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, uh, who was a very difficult and disruptive figure in English history, an extremely aggressive um, nobleman who believed in carrying through the war with the utmost violence and who tried to carve a principality for himself out of his wife's territories. Um, uh, This was a a really serious diplomatic problem for the English because it alienated their main French ally, the Duke of Burgundy. Um, And she features very prominently. But there are other remarkable women. Uh, Yolande of Anjou, uh, the Duchess of Anjou, was the French king's mother-in-law in fact, a Spanish princess, and she was the dominant figure in the French Royal Council uh, for several years at very critical points during the war, uh, including uh, the period uh, associated with Joan of Arc. Margaret of Anjou, who was her granddaughter, uh, and she was married to uh, the um, incapable and ultimately insane English King Henry VI. Uh, and found herself forced increasingly to take over uh, the reins of government, uh, provoking a serious civil war in the years immediately after the Hundred Years' War ended. 
but she was a very powerful figure behind the scenes in the last few years of the war. These are figures that are quite fascinating and some of them are relatively little known. Of course, everybody has heard of Joan of Arc and and even though we've heard about her and we, we know, you know, certainly elements of the story, it's it's kind of hard to get your head around it, the way a 17-year-old girl is able to turn the course of the war. And after such a, a long conflict for, uh, for, for, for Joan of Arc to be this, this dramatic new arrival uh, onto the scene who makes such an impact. Yes. Uh, I mean, it was an extraordinary thing. And we actually know... Uh, more about Joan of Arc than, than just about any uh, of her contemporaries because uh, she was the only witness at her trial and she withstood days and days of cross-examination in which she basically covered her whole life uh, from her first childhood. Um, and then there was another trial, a posthumous inquiry after her death, in which 120 people gave evidence of what sort of person she had been, what she had done. So we know an extraordinary amount about this person. But one of the great difficulties uh, about writing about this period is, what do you do if, like me, you are a rational historian, or at least trying to be, you don't believe in miracles, and you're presented with facts, which certainly contemporaries believed could only be explained by the miraculous. Of course, in all of these things, uh, it's never quite as miraculous uh, as, it's, as it's painted. Um, Joan of Arc presented herself as a prophetess, and there had been reports for years that France would be saved from catastrophe uh, by a virgin warrior. And so people were willing to believe uh, that this was the virgin warrior uh, that the prophecies had foretold. Uh, She basically transformed things, not by her military skill, because she didn't have much of that, but basically by placing herself in the position of greatest danger and surviving, she was totally confident uh, that she was the agent of God uh, to redeem the the defeats of the French. And because she was so confident, she threw herself into the most dangerous situations. And people were persuaded that actually they could win. They were persuaded that she was uh, an agent of God and that therefore they were going to win. Uh, Napoleon once said that morale is three quarters of a war, uh, numbers, tactics, and the rest are only a quarter. And that you couldn't think of a better illustration of that than the transformation of France's military fortunes uh, during the brief period when Joan of Arc burst upon the scene. And how do you explain it in terms of the visions, in terms of... Like, I can understand how it was such a morale boost for the French to have someone who they believed was uh, chosen by God and was going to be able to lead them to victory. And I could see how that would have such an important uh, impact. But what do you think was happening? What Did she believe it herself that she was chosen by God? Did the, did the soldiers really believe that this was uh, God's, God's warrior who had been given to them? Uh, she believed it and... Uh uh, many of the soldiers did, not all of them. And the Joan of Arc had plenty of enemies at the at the French king's court. Uh, there were people who believed that she was a charlatan. There were people who believed uh, that she took advantage of the situation uh, in order to 
uh, throw her weight about the, um, the some of the commanding uh, commanders of the French troops uh, were exasperated by her um, lack of tactical subtlety um, and they tried to keep her away from the decision making process uh, by holding their conferences and meetings at times when she was somewhere else um, but uh, the ordinary soldiers and increasingly the king himself had huge confidence in her. And the great turning point uh, was the March on Reims, which was a, a town occupied by the English and the Burgundians, um, uh, which was the traditional uh, place where French kings were crowned. The French had been trying to get to Reims to crown their king ever since his accession uh, in 1422. In 1429, they finally did it. And they did it largely by bluff. Uh, because Joan of Arc uh, had by that time acquired an enormous reputation as a miracle worker. And she simply presented herself at the gates of the great towns of Champagne, um, uh, Troyes, uh, Chalons, Reims, uh, and people were uh, unwilling to confront what they saw was the power of God. And so these places simply fell without a blow. And that was not just a morale booster, it transforms the strategic situation. It enabled the French to conquer large parts of northern France, the areas north of the Marne, uh, which they had been excluded from by the English for years. Her influence seemed to go into decline after the coronation, though. Uh, King Charles wasn't as willing, it seems, to, uh, to support her, her requests. Yes, well, the great problem is that she was she, she was not a compromiser. She was not a diplomat. And the French king's advisers believe, plainly rightly, that the only long-term solution was to separate the English from their main French ally, who was the Duke of Burgundy. Um, Joan of Arc would have none of that. She believed that the only way of dealing with the Duke of Burgundy was to force him to submit at the point of a lance, as she put it. Um, that wasn't uh, a very intelligent diplomatic approach. And the Duke of Burgundy was the dominant figure in the Anglo-Burgundian regime that was installed in Paris. And so uh, the king was very reluctant to attack Paris. In the end, he did attack Paris. He was more or less forced to do so by public opinion in the army, which was orchestrated to some extent by Joan of Arc. But it was a disaster because Joan of Arc tried what the tactic which had succeeded in Champagne. She appeared before the gates, demanded that they open the gates uh, to the Dauphin and receive him as their king. Uh, and the response came uh, from a soldier uh, on, the, uh, on the battlements. She had said, uh, uh, open the gates for your king uh, or you will all be killed. And he shouted back, shall we now, you brassy trollop? Uh, and uh, aimed an arrow at her, uh, which injured her quite ser seriously, and another which killed her standard bearer standing beside her. So she was left lying in the bottom of a ditch, encouraging the remaining soldiers to, to storm the walls, but they were driven back, and her reputation uh, as a miracle worker and as a soldier never quite recovered from that event, especially as it was followed by other setbacks, and ultimately, of course, though famously, by her own capture at 
siege of Compiègne. And how did people rationalise her capture in 1430? How did they explain away the fact that um, God's will seemed to have allowed this and uh, she was no longer as invincible as, as they had believed? Well, of course, that was one of the main questions that her judges put to her when she was tried for heresy and blasphemy uh, after her capture. And her answer was, well, uh, I was only doing the work of God up to, up to the, and including the coronation. Thereafter, it was all my own idea. Uh, and so don't blame God for all this, or don't doubt that I was God's agent at an earlier stage. Uh, that, that was her answer. And um, it's fair to say that there was a certain amount of embarrassment on the French side when they looked back at this. Um, after Joan had been convicted of, of blasphemy by an ecclesiastical court and executed, I think that many people on the French side felt, well, um, uh, maybe we shouldn't uh, um, be too proud of this. We don't want to suggest that we only owe our victories uh, to a convicted blasphemer. And so she was basically parked and ignored for the next 20 years until the French had finally won the organized a posthumous inquiry into her life, and they exonerated her. Um, it was really rather a, a remarkable story. The whole episode, uh, time between her appearance uh, at the Dauphin's court and her execution in the English capital at Rouen, was only two years. And yet, uh, in that time, more had happened to this extraordinary young woman uh, than happens to most people in their entire lifetime. And as you say, the war continued, but that was a crucial turning point for the French. In terms yeah. of the ending of the war and, and your title of triumph and illusion, what do you see as the triumph and what do you see as the illusion? Well, it's deliberately ambiguous. Uh, there were illusions on both sides. The French kidded themselves that the English had no supporters in France except for, uh, for, for traitors. And that was never true. There was... Certainly at the early stage, quite a lot of support uh, for the English conquest of France. The English kidded themselves that their victories had been, um, were things that they could achieve again, and that they, that they, they basically never confronted until it was too late. Um, the, the really serious financial and logistical problems of occupying a large part of a foreign country with, um, uh, which when constantly under attack. The English triumphed at the beginning and the French at the end. Uh, but uh, as a great sage who wrote his memoirs at the end of the story, Philippe de Comines, once said, the English were very good at winning battles, but very bad at exploiting them to get a satisfactory peace. And finally, Jonathan, you've made the Hundred Years' War a very readable epic. Was that something that uh, you were determined to do to, from uh, the start? I've tried to. I mean, I began my career as an academic historian teaching at Oxford. But I very strongly believe that the ultimate justification of all scholarly writing is to interest and enlighten a wider public. Um, and I certainly have hoped throughout my 43 years of writing this to have achieved that. Wow.
Well, I think you definitely succeeded in that objective. Jonathan, congratulations on what really is a tour de force. The the five-volume series, I think, will stand the test of time as the definitive account of the 100 Years' War. So thank you so much and congratulations. Thank you. The book is called Triumph and Illusion. It's volume five of the 100 Years' War. All of the volumes published by Faber and Faber. The author, Jonathan Sumption, and we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Welcome back. We're talking history. A new book provides the first operational account of the Irish House of Commons in the early Stuart period, a time of immense change in early modern Ireland when the Parliament's structures and operations were established in a manner that would endure until the Act of Union. The book is called The Operations of the Irish House of Commons, 1613 to 1648. It's published in hardback by Four Courts Press as part of the Irish Legal History Society series. And I'm delighted to welcome the author, Breed McGrath to the show tonight. Breed, you're very welcome. Thank you, Patrick. So tell us first of all about the House of Commons in the 17th century. What was it like? Well, it changed over the period is is one of the big parts. There'd been an Irish Parliament since the 13th century, since 1260-something. But it had always been quite small and over the Tudor period it grew and it, it grew and it shrank at different points. But by the time it came to the early 17th century, the Crown finally got control over the whole country. And so it tried to make sure that the Parliament actually reflected the country, but only in some ways. So it created large numbers of of new boroughs, uh, partly to reflect the imbalance, because before then, the towns and shires that were um, in the Parliament were largely from Munster and Leinster. So Connacht and Ulster were very underrepresented. So they were created shires for, for Connacht in the 16th century and then in the 17th century, after the flight of the earls left open for the plantation of Ulster, they created shires there and also a lot of boroughs. Now, the boroughs were important because the, the, there were two types of, well, really three types of um, representatives in, in the House of Commons. There were two, what they called knights of the shire, two from each county, and they were elected by the freeholders in those counties. And then there were a lot of old towns um, which had traditionally sent MPs. And then there were the 40 new boroughs that were created in uh, between, really, um, 16, in 1612, in anticipation of the Parliament meeting in, in 1613. And then also, for the first time, the University Trinity College had two seats as well. Um, and that was following on from the creation of parliamentary franchise for Oxford and Cambridge um, in 1604. So it was following, in some sense, the English pattern. And what do we mean when we talk about a borough? What was, how is that different to a regular constituency? Yeah, um, well, it's, it's very different from England, but it changes over this period. So a borough is a town that has a charter. And because it has a charter often from the king, but often not from the king, from some local magnate that may have set it up when the Normans first came to Ireland. So it has a chief officer, so a mayor or sovereign or portreeve, depending on how big it is, and it has sheriffs, and it has a council, and it has freemen. So that's what constitutes a borough. But when they started creating new constituencies in Ulster, largely, and and Connacht in the early 17th century, they they just picked numbers out of a hat nearly just to have 
a lot of, of new towns and a lot of them were just boroughs. There were holes in the ground with no one there. They didn't have any urban traditions. They they really were, sort of, they, they became boroughs, but they became towns. Some of them became towns post hoc facto, really. And how difficult was it to become an MP in in this period? Yeah, well, it depends where you were sitting for. So if you were um, it, if you were in sitting for a county, they had created by law you were elected by all the freeholders. So the freeholders were people who had an indeterminate lease of land, and um, the, that was the same as in England. So they were the famous forty shilling freeholders that went on into the nineteenth century, and what that meant was they had a freehold that yielded them more than two pounds a year in profit. Uh, but that had been set down in the medieval period, and by the time it came to the 17th century, that was a very, very, very low bar. But the problem really was that leasehold was more usual than freehold in Ireland. But also when they planted Ulster uh, and other places like uh, like Wexford and Longford and Leitrim in the 17th century, they um, one of the conditions under which you got the land that had been taken from the Catholics was that you would create freeholds. But they didn't because a leasehold was more profitable for the um, landowner. And so the the number of freeholders that were there was very, very variable. You didn't know how many there would be. But what also happened was the plantations didn't disturb the old freeholds. So even in the plantation areas, the majority of the voters at the early part of this period were Catholic, but they were expected to vote in Protestants. So there was a lot of very illegal electioneering. Now, it was different in the towns because the towns franchise didn't have a legal basis. as There was no legislative basis to it. So they basically decided who... Um, who got the vote and who didn't. And it changed over this time, it depended. So sometimes it was just, the, it, for the new boroughs that, that were created, it was literally just the council who were all hand-picked Protestants who would always return a Protestant. So essentially uh, a rotten borough because yeah. whoever they wanted, they could pretty much ensure that they got in. Well, they could, except that, you see, the thing was, they were dependent on whoever was the local magnate, the local bigwig, Um to make sure that that happened. And most of the time it, it worked just fine. But when the crisis developed in the 1640s, it, they actually let Catholics in because the person who was running the boroughs wanted specific Catholics in, in the parliament. So it because they were subject to so much influence, it could actually work both ways. So in the 17th century, in this period that you're talking about, how many Catholics would there have been compared to Protestants? Oh, far more. Far, far more. But that wasn't the way it worked out in parliament. You know, um, the, part of the problem was that Ireland was managed by a viceroy, somebody who represented the king, and they came over to Ireland with a list of instructions. And they would never have got the list of instructions through any parliament if they had actually played straight. But they they were obliged to try and get these instructions through. For example, in 1560, the... Um, the Reformation legislation that, again, made um, the Church of Ireland the official state church. There were only about eight Protestants in the Parliament, so there was no way that they could pass that legislation by any legitimate means. And in fact, the eight that were there had clearly been elected by very, very dodgy means altogether. A lot of intimidation and secrecy and um, really, um, really ropey behaviour. And um, so what they did was there was a 
there was a feast day around the time and they agreed that the um, the parliament would adjourn for a few days and come back and start at eight o'clock in the morning, which it usually did um, for the next business. But in fact, the eight Protestants turned up at seven o'clock or so and rammed the, the bill through. I mean, there was so much skullduggery around the place. But the other problem was, um, because of Poyning's Law, the Irish administration drafted the legislation and it had to be sent to England to be checked by the sergeants at law who didn't know much about Ireland and put in all sorts of corrections. But the real problem was that the Irish administration was utterly inept at drafting legislation and there were a lot of bills that the MPs would have been happy to put through, but they were so dodgily written they couldn't. And the only thing they could do under Pointing's Law was either accept it or reject it. They couldn't amend it. So it also meant that the administration had no way of negotiating compromises. So they had to ram stuff through. And that meant that the elections were very, very dodgily managed. God, <laughs> it could, you could have a whole TV series you based have a around. whole TV series. I mean, there were things that Charlie Hawhey would never have dreamt up that went through here. It was, it was, it's like, it, part of it's hilarious, but the rest of it, it's just plain unjust. Now, you've talked about ramming through legislation and you've talked about Poynings Law and, you know, the limitations on the Irish Parliament. What kind of business could it do? You know, was it involved in legislation or was it completely dependent on what the British government and the British Parliament wanted it to do? No, it certainly wasn't dependent on what the British Parliament wanted to do at this stage. After after the Restoration in 1660, it was much more in that position. But at this time, um, there were lots of different things it could do. So the, the main legislation was... There were public legislation, so they had to um, retrospectively um, legitimise the plantation of Ulster, for example. So there were things that if you could do an attainder. So if somebody was a rebel, you could attain them, and that meant you grabbed their land. And they hadn't actually legally done that to O'Neill um, and O'Donnell, the, the earls that flew. So they retrospectively did it. But again, they produced such a botched piece of legislation that even though everybody was quite happy to go along with it, it was so badly drafted they had to find a different way around it. And the way they found around it was it was a constitutional advice in Ireland because the parliaments met so rarely. um, They came up with a device of what they called acts of state and that was basically law issued by proclamation. It didn't go through parliament at all. And so what the MPs asked for was an act of state that would deal with all the problems they had with the bill and they would only pass it when they had actually seen the act of state and then they went on with it. So they were quite creative in the way that they dealt with things. Now this period also covers some quite momentous change in Ireland. You have the plantations, you have the confederation of Kilkenny, you have you know, all those changes, 1641 rebellion and then ending the decade in the 1640s with, you know, Cromwell's arrival. So it's a period which is a violent period and a dramatic period in terms of, of Irish politics. So how, how did the parliament react and respond to that? Well, um, one of the functions that the parliament had, it had a number of functions. One was to pass laws, um, as I said. And another was including laws for taxation, what they were called subsidies. Um, And others were private bills, so that if somebody, say, for example, um, somebody's father or grandfather had been attainted and they wanted to get the land back, they could pass a bill for that. So there were private bills for that. 
Um, but the uh, another function that they had was to deal with grievances. And what they did was, it wasn't like the French system where they created these cahiers de doléances, where they, they literally listed all the local grievances and it went up through a whole system into the Estates General. Here, though, they, the MPs came from their constituencies. Well, the Catholics came from their constituencies. The Protestants could be bunged in anywhere. You know, most of them wouldn't have been able to tell you the name of the place that they had been returned for. It was, um, as I say, very, very, very ropey. But they came with what their constituents wanted them to raise as things that were problems. So they may have been about customs, they may have been about some... Um, a, a running sore was the cost of officials' fees because the officials were all Protestant and they were raking in not merely money but also bribes, you know, and their fees were exorbitant and in every parliament one of the things they asked for was let's reduce these, let's have a list of what fees are are appropriate and let's stick with them. And there was a lot of arbitrary justice. So when um, Thomas Wentworth came as Lord Lieutenant, uh, he was notoriously vindictive and thuggish and had no mass on the law whatsoever. So though he, he and his reforms... Um, generated a lot of grievances. And so there was an absolute torrent of petitions that came in to the Irish Parliament in 1641. And now part of that was just that those were legitimate grievances. But the other thing was a lot of them were invited or prompted by the Irish Parliament because it was part of the campaign in the English Parliament with whom they were working hand in glove because they wanted regime change. Um, it was a way of pulling down um, Wentworth in England, which led to his death. And there's a dramatic period then where you have, you know, a large part of the country really under, you know, this confederacy, this confederation of Kilkenny. Well, one of the things that happened was that um, there had been a move from the 16th into the 17th century of trying to make sure that the land titles were under the English sort of system rather than the old Irish clan system. And they kept on issuing things guarantees of title for which people had to pay a fortune and they paid repeatedly for guarantees for the same property. And this was a problem also in England and Scotland, but what they did is in the English and, and Scottish, uh, the Scottish estates and the English Parliament, they passed an act saying if you'd had a clear title to that land for 80 years, it was secure. They didn't do that in Ireland because they wanted to keep on grabbing the land. So it was, they had negotiated a deal with Charles I, um, that they would get that. But they, the Parliament could not ever get those bills passed. And that was really the reason that the rebellion started, that people just, the, the economic basis of Catholics was undermined at every hand's turn by very nefarious and dodgy means that would never have been tolerated in England. Breed McGrath, absolutely brilliant talking to you tonight. A wonderful new book, The Operations of the Irish House of Commons, 1613 to 1648. Some wonderful insights into a world very different in some ways and in others perhaps not so different at all. Uh, published in hardback by Four Courts Press, part of its wonderful Irish Legal History Society series. The author, Dr. Breed McGrath. And Breed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, it was a pleasure. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk.
right after this. Well, welcome back to Talking History. In 1784, a small group of Irish surgeons broke ranks with the Guild of Barber Surgeons to form the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, or CSI. And a new book tells the story of the Royal College of Surgeons through its contributions to a near quarter millennium of surgical, medical and societal change, from 19th century body snatchers to the 1916 rising, through two pandemics and two world wars, with a vivid cast of characters reaching right to the present day. The book is called Every Branch of the Healing Art, A History of the or CSI. It's published in hardback by Wordwell. The author is Dr. Ronan Kelly. And Ronan, you're very welcome to the show. Thanks a million, Patrick. I want to begin with body snatchers. <laughs> how, how significant a role did they play and why were they so important? Well, that takes us back to when um, medicine and surgery really takes off in Ireland. So as you said, or CSI dates from 1784. And there's a real growth in medical education at that time in Ireland and in Britain as well. And, and so in order to teach anatomy, you need to have subjects, cadavers, bodies to study. Now, this was a legal grey area um, insofar as if you, if you took a body from a grave, you weren't committing a crime. But if you took the clothes they were wearing, you were committing a crime. So actually body snatchers would go to somewhere like Bully's Acre up by Kilmainham and they would take a body from a grave, fresh body, take off the clothes, pop it in a bag and bring it into some of the medical schools around the city and RCSI and Trinity and all the various medical schools. And there were very many, actually very many in this area and Peter Street and all around the Ledwich School and so forth. They would bring them in and the work would be done. So the, the young students would learn what happened inside the body. But uh, at the same time, you weren't really supposed to be doing it. So it was very much a, a grey area. Really things went to the bad, shall we say when bodies were being exported from Ireland to two medical schools in the UK. And in particular, there's the case of Burke and Hare. So Burke and Hare were two Irish uh, labourers. They were digging canals in Edinburgh and uh, they found that it was much easier to, well, kill somebody in the street and bring the body to, to the university for sale than it was to dig a canal. And so when that scandal broke... Um, there was general public outcry and that introduced the Anatomy Act of 1832 and that that just wiped out at a stroke uh, the whole business of the illegal trade in in bodies. Okay, so let's go a little bit further back then to uh, the formation of the the Royal College of Surgeons and I suppose the the view towards medicine and towards surgery because it's different from the way it is now in the 21st century. Yeah, it's quite the story of, say, surgeons' rise to respectability and, and incredible eminence is a, is a fascinating one. And it's a really rapid one, too. So let's take that era before the College of Surgeons, any time before 1784. Surgery is more or less lumped in with the barbers. There is the, the Guild of Barber Surgeons. If you could, if you had sharp enough tools to trim somebody's beard, you could lance an abscess just as well. So a barber was a surgeon, was a barber, was a surgeon. There was no great distinction for hundreds of years. Within that, though, things got slowly got a little bit more sophisticated. And some surgeons were trying to break free of, of the barber connection. And they tried repeatedly through the uh, 17th and 18th century. And finally, they, they get to break free with the foundation of the College of Surgeons in 1784. But there's already a major distinction in the world of healthcare between surgeons on the one hand and physicians on the other hand, now physicians came a slightly different route. They didn't intervene physically in the body. They were people who went to universities. They were, they were certainly learned. They probably spoke Latin. Um, they didn't even carry tools of the trade and so forth. 
and they just sort of prescribed. It was, it was relatively hands-off as a thing. Uh, surgeons, on the other hand, if you had to call a surgeon, that was your, that was your last gasp. It was, it was that or death or something like that. If you couldn't live with what you had, well then, okay, we'll go see the surgeon. And surgeons occupied a completely different realm. They trained by apprenticeship, so it was a master-apprentice sort of scenario. And if your master was great, well then might, you might well turn into a very good surgeon. If your master wasn't particularly good, then you probably wouldn't. Um, so there was no great regulation of that. So the, the surgeons in Ireland and elsewhere were keen to break away from the guild and set up themselves. So there was a particular uh, impetus on the continent to that. And a figure called Sylvester O'Halloran, he was a Limerick-born uh, surgeon, he trained on the continent and he was able to see how things were being done differently there. So he came back to Dublin and he, he wrote a, a short document, Proposals for the Advancement of Surgery in Ireland. And there were a couple of things in that document he said, we need, a, we need a location, we need a list of competent surgeons, and we need exams, we need examiners, so that there's a minimum standards. And that very much is the blueprint for what would become the College of Surgeons. But it still took another 20 odd years to, to break free of, of the barbers. We had a show on Napoleon two weeks ago, and there's a wonderful connection with uh, Napoleonic Europe and with, with all of that uh, in, in here. Yeah, there sure is. When RCSI gets started in 1784, they don't have a premises. Um, they don't really have a great deal of money or anything like that. It's more of an ideal and a piece of paper and off you go. Um, for the first while, they, they just meet in various places. They, the very first meeting of the College of Surgeons takes place in the Rotunda. You could say that RCSI was born in the Rotunda, like a good many uh, Dubliners. Um, but really what changes the fortunes for a place like RCSI is the role of wars that happen from. So, so Britain and France go to war in, what, 1793 and more or less stay at it with a few breaks till Waterloo, yeah. 1815. Uh, and so really all that time there's a great need for surgeons in the army and the navy. And so all the medical schools and say RCSI in particular are benefiting from that. So um, there isn't, to the best of my knowledge, a portrait of Napoleon in the College of Surgeons. We have some terrific portraits by very great eminent artists. But uh, I sometimes think we, we should have a portrait of, of uh, Napoleon in there too, because it was thanks to those wars that RCSI had the funds to, first of all, uh, rent a house very close to where we are now. It was on, on Mercer Street and there was a very handy back lane there, Diggs Lane outside, where bodies would be delivered. And then uh, into 1805, they purchased a plot of land on St. Stephen's Green. And they started to build, you know, from, from, from going from nothing. And remember where surgery started, very much uh, a trade, not particularly respectable. They started to build a massive temple to surgery on St. Stephen's Green. And that first iteration opened in 1810. And again, with the wars that were going on, it had to expand. It had to expand almost immediately. And the, the version that we know today that looks at the Lewis stop dates from about 1827. So... There were a lot of dramatic changes then in the years ahead. So one of them was the decision to admit women and uh, uh, how difficult and how long was the struggle to, to allow women to, to become surgeons? These things are done by, by charter and so forth. So there was an amendment to the charter in 1885 and Sir Charles Cameron, who we, you probably talked about before in relation to uh, the 1918 flu pandemic, he was instrumental in bringing in that uh, charter with the proviso that women could study and become fellows, and indeed become president from 1885. Now, it took quite a long time before there was a first female president. That was 2010. But the first female student came to RCSI in that first year, 1885, a woman called Agnes Shannon. And we don't know very much about her. We know she studied chemistry under Cameron again, but she didn't, she didn't graduate. So you can already tell it's, it's not going to be an easy ride. 
Then after that, the first person who comes just comes and sits exams. In that era, you could, you didn't have to study in an institution to come and, and sit the exams. So uh, a, a woman called Mary Emily Dowson comes from, from Britain and she's the first person to gain the RCSI licence. After that, the first person to study, Mary Josephine Hannan, and we have a portrait of her, study and qualify. A really interesting figure from that period is Emily Winifred Dixon who becomes the first female fellow of RCSI. She gets her fellowship in 1893 and she is a brilliant student right through. She wins the prizes. We have those medals and all the various encomia. We have those in the archive still. But you can see that the glass ceiling is incredibly thick and incredibly difficult to, 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 to break. So even when she goes to do postgraduate work on the continent, she's refused access to some letters. In Berlin, in fact, because her middle name is Winifred, they said, well, you got here on false pretenses. We thought you were a man. And she just wasn't allowed into the lectures. She came back. She was actually teaching in RCSI. Students within the college said, no, we can't be examined by a woman. That's that's beneath us. In fact, it, it was, the subject was uh, obs and gynae. I mean, what would she know about that, right? In fairness to the college authorities, they said, she, you will be examined by her and you better just get on with your studies. Her career more or less ended when she got married, though, in the early 20th century. Now, as it happens, war came along, her husband came back shell-shocked and she had to go out and be the breadwinner again. But she had a pretty tough life in the whole world of healthcare thereafter. So, yeah, that glass ceiling persisted for a very long time, even when they were completely, obviously brilliant people. The 1916 Rising, of course, also had a huge impact on it and it becomes one of the sites of battle. Yeah, it does. I mean, at the time, the college authorities were none too impressed that this band uh, arrived into the college and took it over for a week. Of course, now we're delighted to be part of the national narrative. And it is like, I think it's the single largest chapter in the book and I've got lots of pictures and so forth. So what happened there was, um, as we know, Easter Monday, a garrison arrives to the Green. Um, a few of the rebels pop into the college almost straight away. There's, there's, a, there's a, a professor called John Freeman Knott who was heading in to do a bit of work in the library didn't really know there was a rising going on. I don't think he even knew it was a bank holiday. And a couple of the rebels like pushed through the door with him. Um, it was the next day when, when, the, when the rebels in the green were being fired upon. They, they, they moved. So Malin and Markovitz were in charge. They moved over to the college. And one of the kind of very interesting things about where they went to in the college is that, as I said earlier, that first iteration of the building on Stevens Green from 1810 had, had three windows looking onto the green. But when it expanded, it expanded with a series of dummy windows. So if you're standing at the Lewis stop, actually there's a bit of work happening on the front of the college, so you can't exactly see this, but you will in time. The first three windows, as you look from the left, are, are, are glass windows. Then the next three are false windows. And behind that there was, at the time, a museum and things were kind of preserved and so they didn't need light streaming in. But it meant that that was a concrete wall with false windows at the front. So that's where the rebels set up their base. That's where they had their Red Cross station. The book is called Every Branch of the Healing Art, A History of the RCSI. It's published in hardback by Wordwell. The author is Ronan Kelly. And Ronan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to Marais O'Sullivan, my producer, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've got more debate and discussion next week, so hope you can join us then. We've been Talking History. Good night.